Now, empathy and compassion don't mean you're giving up your perspective, and they don't mean you're giving your partner a pass on whatever they've done that you feel hurt by. But it does uh, create a scenario where communication then becomes an agent of repair instead of a weapon. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Resilient Self. We're here to talk about the human experience, mental health, wellness, relationships, and of course, how we bounce back when things don't go as planned. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Thanks for being here this week. This is Chris Neal. I'm a counselor and educator, a licensed professional counselor in Texas. And I've got a solo show for you today. We're going to talk about relationships, specifically how do we resolve conflict in relationships without just duking it out. I invite you to check out some of our recent interview shows if you enjoy the interviews. Uh, last time I talked with Kira Wackett, a psychotherapist and coach up in the Portland, Oregon area. Actually, we're going to talk about Kira's work again here in just a moment. Uh, Joseph Bennett talked about how do we rest and then Joey Pagano gave us some really amazing insight into the world of addiction uh, therapy. So thinking back to Kira's interview, and if you haven't heard that, it's the most recent episode right before this one. And Kira talked about the connection between shame and the fear response. She argued that, that shame kind of lives in the fear response in the mind and body. And as I considered her thoughts on that, I, I think she's right. And so we, we can get more into that another time, but uh, when I think of fear, uh, I immediately think about the stress response. And so you've heard me talk about the stress response before, that uh, we really are all cavemen living in a modern world. The human brain and body haven't changed much in, in several thousand years. And the stress response is there to help us fight the tiger or run away. And so I think Kira's right, and I'm going to piggyback onto this and suggest that they're all connected. So shame, fear, and by extension, the fight-or-flight response. And so I've been thinking about this in the context of relationships, and is it possible that we can somehow um, use our understanding of these concepts to perform kind of a relationship judo, if you will, ways that we can step around uh, disagreements uh, in productive ways that keep us from just fighting it out and actually find some real resolution to those. Now, what happens when we disagree in relationships? Uh, I think one of the things that happens is we prove that Newton's third law absolutely exists in relationships. Newton's third law, of course, every action is met with an equal and opposite reaction. And when we argue in relationships, it is definitely a force meets force proposition. And we focus on how our partner is bothering us or letting us down. And we so easily get caught up in what John Gottman uh, refers to his four horsemen, the first two of those four horsemen, criticism and defensiveness. So we get this back and forth uh, that is so easy to fall into, even in the best of relationships. I mean, we all, we all have rough times. And so, uh, so when we get force meets force, we just start pushing back on each other and thinking that that's somehow going to lead us to, to productive change. And um, I, I don't know, I'm just not convinced that it usually does. I think we, when we really make meaningful change, it happens in other ways. So another show I was listening to recently is a, is a podcast, it's a beautiful show called Being Well. Uh, it's done by Forrest Hansen and uh, Dr. Rick Hansen. And if you know the name Rick Hansen, uh, Dr. Hansen is one of the authors of a book called Buddha's Brain, which I think is just on uh, 
should be on everyone's reading list if you really want to understand these interactions between mind and brain and body and relation and um, uh, emotion. And so uh, I think that's a terrific book. And they did an interview with Dr. Sue Johnson. And Dr. Johnson uh, is uh, the developer of emotionally focused therapy, which I'm not going to try to explain all of that, but basically what I got from her interview, and I encourage you to go check out that show because it's a terrific episode. Um, you know, she talks about how do we how do we lean into the emotion that's going on in the room when we're trying to resolve uh, difficulties in a relationship, and she talked about the utility of that and how that really um, can be useful and important for us. Now, I think there's a synergy with, with Dr. John Gottman's work, and I've, you've heard me talk about Gottman before, I think. Uh, Dr. Gottman, University of Washington, uh, is one of the big uh, prolific researchers in, in marriage and family therapy, and, and Dr. Gottman talks about turning inward in times of stress. And, you know, as I kind of put those pieces together, it reminded me of some training that I did years ago and and, and an approach that I'm really invested in called nonviolent communication. Nonviolent communication by Marshall Rosenberg, who was a psychologist uh, who developed this, I think it was in the early 70s. It was in the days of the Vietnam conflict when nonviolence was kind of a part of the national narrative a little bit. And Rosenberg wanted to develop a framework for uh, ways that we can bring people from disparate viewpoints uh, together to do some meaningful work. And so uh, some of the things that are critical for his work in nonviolent communication uh, include uh, emotions being understood as growing out of needs. So we all have needs that are are personal and inarguable. So you have your own needs. They're going to be different than mine or someone else's. And uh, no one gets to decide what your needs are. They're fundamental to you. Sometimes I talk about those in terms of core values. Um, And emotions... Rosenberg argues that those grow out of what our needs, uh, whether our needs are met or unmet. And then, so part of the the interactive process when we're trying to navigate that involves making empathic guesses or well-stated requests to the other person, and and there are ways to foster empathy. Uh, again, I'm not I'm not going to drill down on any of these particular uh, approaches right now. I I think I'd like to do a show on nonviolent communication down the road. And so, uh, if you're a, an NBC expert and you want to come on the show, hey. Uh, look me up because we'll talk about it because I, I think I'd like to bring someone else in to talk about NVC. Um, I've got some training in it, but uh, I think I'd like to hear from someone else as well. But when when you boil it down, emotional focus therapy, Gottman's work, and nonviolent communication all have something pretty important in common, emotion. When When we lead with emotion, that becomes a really useful thing. And so Considered in a relational context, when we lead with thoughts or evaluations, there's always something to fight about. You know, you should have done this. Well, no, I shouldn't. Well, you shouldn't have done that. Well, yeah, I should have. Um, and and so when we lead with thoughts or evaluations, there's always a way to disagree. However, emotions, as Gottman would, uh, excuse me, as um, Rosenberg would say in nonviolent communication, and I concur, emotions are personal and inarguable. No one gets to say that you feel hurt. No one gets to say that you feel upset because those are your feelings. You own them. You're responsible for them. And so when we lead with emotion, that cuts a lot of the conflict out because there's nothing to argue about when we focus on that. Now, we're not all the way home, and we'll talk about that today. But but when when we focus on emotions rather than focusing on what our partner should or should not have done or could be doing or ways that they're just bugging us, then that is such an easy target for us to, again, prove Newton's third law in relationships. 
Friends, we hope you're enjoying all the content here at The Resilient Self. If you're wondering how you can support our work on the show, we've made it super easy. You can check out the show notes or head over to our website, theresilientself.com, and click on the link that says, Buy Me a Coffee. Now, you're not actually buying me a real cup of coffee, but through a one-time donation or an ongoing membership, you're helping with the development and production costs of the show. When you take this step, you're helping us bring the resilient self to others all over the world. So if you want to help us pay it forward, this is the easiest way. And please know that we deeply appreciate your support at any level. Now, I've, I've said for years, uh, in fact, I even used to joke about this long before I entered counseling training, that couples don't argue about the thing. We argue about other stuff that kind of represents the core issue. You, you, most of you probably have heard of the, the cliche of the who left the cap off the tube of toothpaste and getting to a, a blowout argument over that. And, you know, cliches have their basis in reality typically, right? And so that's the thing. You know, a lot of times in, in partnerships, we argue about stupid stuff that doesn't even, not even stupid, but it's just stuff that doesn't really represent what's really going on. And when we do that, we focus on evaluations or sometimes just our perceptions of those uh things that are going on, and we use those things to tear our partner down. Um, another thing that we often do, uh, I think uh, that can be really difficult for us, is a lot of times we disagree when we're angry. Well, when you're angry, you're in fight or flight. And when you're in fight or flight, you're in reaction mode. You're not in response mode. The, the prefrontal cortex that does all your analysis um, usually is not in the game. And so uh, when we disagree when we're angry, we're just basically kind of throwing fuel on that fire. Uh, it kind of leads to digging our heels in, saying that are things that are unkind or hurtful, sometimes things we don't even mean. Now, let's get back to Kira's comment about the connection between shame and fear. So when we demand that our partner defer to our version of reality, uh, we're kind of setting up a difficult situation that when we argue about, hey, this happened, no, this happened. Um, by the way, um, a lot of people may not realize that um, one of the functions, a lot of us know a lot of the functions of the fight or flight response. We know about accelerated heart rate. We know about adrenaline and cortisol and pupils dilating. But a fun one that I think a lot of people don't know is uh, a, a condition called auditory exclusion. If you think about caveman in the woods fighting the tiger, he doesn't need to hear the owl screeching up in the trees. He needs to be entirely focused on what the tiger's doing. So auditory exclusion, which for uh, the caveman in that moment is a pretty useful thing. Uh, in an argument where we probably ought to be able to hear exactly what our partner says, uh, not so useful. Uh, for a musician who's playing in a symphony orchestra, you know, the, the violinists probably need to be able to hear the cellos in an orchestra. So auditory exclusion becomes a real problem in, in many modern contexts. Uh, of course, our perceptions in those moments feel uh, feel true to us, but our perceptions are inherently unreliable. Memory is horribly unreliable, uh, especially when you're in fight or flight. So we can't really rely on that uh, when we're talking about these things. And so we can end up kind of spinning round and round with our partner about, you said this, you did this, you shouldn't have done that, you should have done this, yada, yada, right? And and so what we're really kind of doing is we're, we're demanding that our, no, we're not asking, we're demanding that our partners defer to our perceptions. We ask them to table their own understandings and make themselves smaller, make themselves less to accommodate us. That's shame. Whenever someone makes themselves smaller to accommodate someone else, that's what shame is. 
Now, most of us would not intentionally shame our partners, and so recognizing this can sometimes be a bitter pill to swallow, but there it is. Asking your partner to be smaller, asking your partner to just accept your interpretation of whatever's going on is a version of shaming them. Now, does that mean we can't disagree about what happened? No, it doesn't mean that. Uh, of course you can disagree, and you can disagree about anything. That's your prerogative. It's your relationship. But what I would offer is that sometimes if we want to argue, if we want to lead with facts, we want to we want to lead with uh, history or opinions, you know, hey, you shouldn't stay out till 10 o'clock at night when you get off work at 6 because I need help with the kids and I need this and that. Well, you know, that, that point can be argued, right? Uh, but what are we really doing there? Okay, that's the question. When when we are arguing about what our partner could have done, should have done, uh, or the opposite of that, uh, I think the important work there is to decide what work you're really doing for yourself. Are you seeking power? Are you channeling your own insecurities? Are you just finding a really confrontational way of trying to talk about your feelings when you don't necessarily have words for them? I, th- I think that's part of the personal work. When we're mad at someone else, there's something in us that really needs some attention and care. And we have to give that for ourselves because often, especially if we're arguing, our partner's not likely to give it to us then, right? And so we have to do that work for ourselves. And so sometimes, even when we're really activated, when we're really amped up, sometimes if we can just be with ourselves for a moment and think about what is it that I'm really, what's really going on with me here? Okay, well, my partner is three hours late getting home and I had to deal with the kids all myself tonight, and I was frustrated, and I was confused because I didn't know they were going to be there, just hypothetically, right? And so um, understanding where you're coming from on that and what it is you're actually seeking there. Are you seeking power? Are you trying to just find the words, and basically all you got right now is your your, your partner's actions? That helps you to know. Um, another thing to think about is how are you disagreeing? If you're in fight or flight, the odds of doing so productively go way down. I think when you want to debate with your partner, I think it's probably helpful to think about what the goal is. If you're debating over what should have or should not have happened uh, or arguing about details, you know, doing that may give you the win in the debate. Uh, The question for me is not can you win the debate with your partner, though. Uh, The question for me is does it really facilitate repair? And... When we're going to disagree with a partner, we hope it can lead us somewhere good. We hope it can help us create repair with this person so we can go on about the life we we are trying to have together. Recognize that shame is different than guilt. Guilt is I did a thing and the thing was bad and I'm probably going to be punished. Shame is I did a thing and I am bad. And the punishment is catastrophic. Things like if, if I did a thing and I am bad, then I don't deserve love. I don't deserve a perspective, I need to make myself smaller to accommodate this other person, or in some cases, on some level, I don't deserve to exist. Shame kind of dehumanizes in many ways, and so shame is a very different thing than guilt or even just adhering to social constructs. I know sometimes people use the word shame in terms of adhering to social constructs, but from from my perspective, those are sort of different. Shame is when we feel less than. Uh, as a result of those mistakes and transgressions. Now, it's pretty useful in a debate. You know, if you can make your partner feel, if you can make whoever you're debating feel smaller, if you can make them feel dumb, if you can gaslight them into giving up, yeah, but uh, but I don't recommend it. It's the enemy of intimacy and connection. Shame undermines intimacy and connection at every level. 
So if you want intimacy and connection in your relationship, then you can help things out by finding different ways to disagree. Pro tip here, don't disagree when you're mad. Walk away. This is one of the things that Kalman talks about, and I think it's pretty useful. What can we do instead? We, if our partner's upsetting us, it's not that you can't have a perspective or disagree about facts, but when we lead with feelings instead of should or evaluations or demands, uh, then we, we get into a situation where we're, we're hopefully tapping into some of those things that brought us together in the first place. Um, you've heard me say the word demand several times. Let me just kind of take a little, a little detour here. Uh, this is a Rosenberg thing, a nonviolent communication thing. The difference between a request and a demand is that a request is when you're willing to hear no. And so a request is not when you say please. A request is not when you use uh, you know, a nice voice. A request is when you're willing to be declined and still be okay with that. Um, and so uh, a demand can really be stated in ways that sound very kind. You might even say please, but you know, if a teacher asks a student to sit down and quit throwing things across the room, well, they may say please and they may say it in a nice voice, but you know, for most classroom teachers, that's not a request, right? And so we just understand that. Now, when we lead with a feeling, we not only eliminate the thing that is most easily argued about, the should or the history, we, we then foster that natural empathy and compassion that's present in any supporting and loving relationship. I'm going to take a leap here and assume that if you're listening to this show, you probably are interested in things like empathy and compassion because that's what I talk about. Honestly, to build empathy and compassion, you may not feel compassionate when you're mad at someone. You may not want to hold space for them. I get that. I do. Uh, I, I want to encourage you to check out episode two, How to Go Next Level with Empathy. And in that show, I talk about empathy as the attunement to the emotional state of the other. It's not feeling what they feel. That's codependency. That's not what we want. Uh, so we don't want to be emotional tofu. We don't want to be robots. We want to find that sweet spot in the middle where we can attune to what the other person is going through. And then compassion, the way I like to conceptualize it, is that uh, among other things, uh, the uh, awareness of suffering and desire to alleviate it, it's holding space for the other, no matter when and how they are. So this is big. Because compassion sometimes is actually being able to hold space for your partner when they're pissing you off, right? Compassion is being able to say, okay, I'm really upset with you right now, but I'm going to stay here and we're going to work on this and I'm going to try to meet you in that space in the middle. Uh, it requires a lot of cooperation. If only one of the two is, is doing that, it, it makes it harder. But when we can, we can come together on that. We can develop those empathy and compassion skills. Then compassion becomes the opposite of shame. Shaming others creates power differentials. It dehumanizes. But compassion, compassion is equity. Compassion humanizes people. Now, this point cannot be overstated because if shame is the enemy of intimacy and connection, empathy and compassion are the kryptonite of shame. They wipe it out. Can't have shame if you're really deploying empathy and compassion because those are the things that humanize people. They lift us up. They bring us together. That's the opposite of shame. Now, empathy and compassion don't mean you're giving up your perspective, and they don't mean you're giving your partner a pass on whatever they've done that you feel hurt by. But it does uh, create a scenario where communication then becomes an agent of repair instead of a weapon. And that's the relationship judo, right? When, when we can turn those relational patterns into things that foster connection, foster empathy and compassion, then... 
uh, then we we have a prayer of creating repair instead of just you know going at it with Newton's third law, force meets force. So some of the some of the things that I can kind of summarize for you, if if we can avoid disagreeing when you're in fight or flight, and and I'm asked on occasion, well, what do we do? I'm like, walk away, go walk around the block, go to the mall. I don't care. Find some way to get somewhere that you can lower your your pulse and get back into a place where the prefrontal cortex can be driving the bus. And when that can happen, then hopefully we can be more in response instead of reactive mode. And it keeps us from kind of throwing out those little verbal grenades that sometimes it's hard to come back from. When we lead with feelings, then we lead with the thing that can't be argued, right? And that that's always a great start. And then it also fosters empathy and compassion. You know, if I say to someone that I'm, I'm sitting with, hey, I was really confused and upset by this. Well, if this person really cares about me, they don't want me to be confused and upset. So they're going to say, well, tell me about that. You know, they're going to they're gonna ask instead of tell. And so when we focus on, hey, what's it like to be you in this moment? Then it gives us some pretty powerful tools. It gives us some relationship judo. So friends, that's it for this week. I'm curious, what are your best techniques for squashing conflict and getting on common ground in your relationships? Uh, you know the drill. I'd like you to please subscribe, give us a positive rating if you're willing, and please share this show with someone that you care about. I'm Chris Neal, Integrative Psychotherapist. I am so glad you're here today. Thank you for joining us, and I will see you next time. The Resilient Self is a production of Insight Media, LLC. The information presented on the show and at theresilientself.com is intended to educate and entertain and should not be considered as legal, medical, or psychological advice or as therapy of any kind. The information presented should not be used to diagnose or treat any psychological, psychiatric, or medical condition. While we make every effort to present accurate and insightful information, the host, guests, and Insight Media LLC make no warranty that the information presented here will be applicable in your situation or location. Opinions expressed in the show do not represent those of Insight Media LLC, their ownership, or employees. 